to the book of James, James chapter 1. Uh, and if you're visiting Sam, it's not just a bunch of jokes in here. We really do work through books of the Bible, and uh, we started a new series on James, and we'll break away from this as we get closer to Easter, and we'll finish up the Gospel of John, which we left last year before COVID, and then we'll come back to the book of James. But uh, typically, we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and work our way through. That's what we're doing here. Uh, James chapter 1, we're picking it up in verse 16. This is God's word. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he, uh, will he brought, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray one more time. Father, May the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I brought with me something that you probably have never seen. This is my string-changing kit. And uh, I have a number of guitars, and it might surprise you. I mean, some people are, uh, will occasionally come to me and say, will you put some strings on my guitar? I'm glad to. Uh, but I change strings on a guitar probably every three weeks. And uh, in fact, three weeks ago, I changed three sets of strings in like two days. I just do it all the time. And in my string changing kit, I've got, of course, some extra strings. Uh, I've always got a uh, 9-volt uh, battery in here. I've got a uh, groovy little string winder that you use to uh, zip through the process. I've got some cutters um, and some other little doodads in here, pick and some extra bridge pins and stuff like that. But the thing I wanted to show you is this. And I've had this probably since I was 18 years old. It is a tuning fork. And uh, what you do is you whack it on your kneecap, and then you put it on the bridge of the guitar. Can you hear that? A couple of you. you. It finds, a, it, it finds a, a, a speaker cabinet in the guitar, and, uh, it's, uh, and this is A. This is A440. It vibrates 440 times uh, per second, and that is an A. And I start with that because I've, I found an illustration in a book I was reading, and um, it's about an old music teacher. And somebody walked in and said to the old music teacher, hey, what's the good news for today? And the old music teacher said, um, he pulls out a tuning fork, and he hits it, and he sets it down, and it's an A. <laughs> and the music teacher says, that is an A. It is an A today. It was an A 5,000 years ago, and it will be an A 10,000 years from now, and that is the good news for today. That's a pretty good answer. And of course, I was so excited because I have an eight uh, uh, tuning fork. But, uh, but my whole point is this, ladies and gentlemen. This is the, the big takeaway I would love for you to see here. The unchanging God is behind everything good. Don't you like that there's, there are absolutes? Some of you people are numbers people, and you have to come up to, with a clean bottom line. Uh, some of you are engineering people, and you have to have uh, you know, the, the right mathematics. Don't you like absolute truths? Well, God is this unchanging God. He's an absolute truth, and he'll be the same forever as he was and has been for all eternity. Well, let's go to our first point of three, which is uh, kind of a pickup from last week. I'm calling it, for lack of anything better to call it, I'm calling it Sweet 16. Verse 16, what do we do with it? Um, look at it. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. I don't know if you've got like a little annotated Bible where you've got little, you know, one letter A, little B, four, and all these little things that give you other verses, but there's nothing about verse 16. It just sits there by itself. And, and uh, you know, I mentioned before that uh, the book of James is unique because it's an epistle 
But it's also proverbial, and uh, it, it just uh, it, it, it reads a lot like Ecclesiastes at points. And, and so you, hear, you have verse 16 sitting there. Do not be deceived, my loved brothers. Um, is it a proverb in that it stands on its own? Because um, it looks like wisdom literature, but it's also a command, isn't it? It's not a little helpful suggestion. It's, uh, it's um, an imperative. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Um, so, on the one hand, people take verse 16 and they connect it to the passage we're in today. On the other hand, they take verse 16 and they connect it to where we were last week. Well, I'm doing both, and it's not because I'm a cop-out. It certainly very clearly pertains to verses 17 and 18. But James has just written um, of being fooled and lured into temptation and how dangerous it is. And so, you can see how that also incredibly applies to what has previously uh, been said. It sews it all together. Uh, verse 13, also look at this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Oh, well, uh, yes, uh, sure, I've got a terrible uh, uh, raging problem with blah, 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 but God made me that way. You must understand, I've just been made that way. Well, we're disallowed from blaming God uh, for our personality quirks or even environmental things or health issues or anything and saying, well, that's the reason I've sinned is because of that. You know, it's really something God plopped down in my life because he's in sovereign control. We're not to say God is tempting me, at me because God is not evil and he tempts no one. Well, that was just said in verse 13. Look at verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So you could also see that verse 16 kind of sews all that up together too. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't say God is tempting me. He doesn't author evil. He controls all things, but he doesn't author evil. And furthermore, it goes on in verse 17, like I said, he's perfect. He's good. His gifts are good and perfect. And, and he's a, the Father of the heavenly lights. And so verse 16 uh, kind of ties all those things up. So I would say... Uh, that we are still in the book of James here in chapter 1, housed in an architecture that James is building, uh, where we are facing and dealing with trials. Also, that uh, those trials often are accompanied by temptations. They expose raw places and what we really trust in. Uh, there's also a pattern that goes uh, from temptation to sin, um, and uh, we're, we're, we're challenged by those things. And uh, there's also a perfectly good God who gives us help. And uh, verse 16 ties all those things together. All right, so to apply this first point uh, to our lives, why, why does it matter to you today? I was reading this one commentator, and uh, I think he's an old, he's, he's now probably 20 years dead, but he's an old British uh, Anglican-y, brainy guy. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, John Stott was one of those guys. Um, uh, Trying to think of who else. Oh, I think C.S. Lewis was Anglican too. But anyway, a lot of those brainy British people, he's one of them. And so he, he uses kind of like phrases that we wouldn't use. But he talks about uh, facing temptation and giving this, this term, house room, to desire. What he means by giving house room is that, uh, you know, somebody comes to your house for whatever reason. Maybe it's your 27-year-old kid. Coming home with the dog to live with you for a little while while they figure it all out. Okay, great. Welcome on in. Or maybe it's a sojourner who comes through. Or maybe it's a relative. Uh, we, had a, we, had, we have some friends and Aunt Ruby would come and live with them. Aunt Ruby would come and she'd live like four months and go to the next relative and live four months. And so, but at some point, you, you, know, you open up your, your home and you give them house room. 
You give them a room in your house. Well, when you give somebody a room in your house, that's a big commitment, man, because they're pulling out a toothbrush and some clothes, and they're putting it in a drawer, and now next thing you know, they're rummaging around the refrigerator, and uh, um, it's the commitment of letting somebody into your house under, under your roof. Well, the same commentator says this. He talks about inviting sin in and giving, them, giving sin house room, all right? So, um, you know, a person is tempted, he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And it all starts with going, temptation, I'd like to come in and have a little house room. Oh, well, uh, come down the hall. We give, some, we, give, we give our temptation house room. Well, that's a mistake. He says this, such is the disintegrating force to which we expose ourselves when we allow desire to give birth to sin and sin to bring forth death. Once the process takes over, there is an inevitability about it. The end is implicit in the beginning. Do not be deceived, my loved brothers. When, when enticement comes and when temptation comes, we open up that door and we say, I will give you some house room. Come on down the hall. Well, there, he says there's an inevit inevitability about it. The end is implicit in the beginning. As soon as you say, come on in, it's harder and harder and harder to kick the bad thing out, isn't it? Because they're taking up house room. That's why verse 16 applies to what came before, but also play, applies to what, what comes after. Um, you know, much is made um, of, of James here. You know, he tends to, when he starts a new section, he tends to use the word brothers. That seems to be something that James kind of does. And, and uh, if you read Bible commentators like I do, I have a wall of nothing but Bible commentators. Whenever they have, whether it's Paul writing or whomever, some New Testament writer, Every time the, the writer uses the word brother, they go into like two paragraphs of, of how pastoral it is, uh, that he calls us brother, and it's, uh, they make a big deal of it, and then, you know, it just fills up a couple more pages in their uh, commentary. It gets fatter and fatter, you know, it looks more and more legit. And it's great that it's pastoral, and I've pointed out to you that James calls us brothers, and he puts himself in the same soup with us. He's having a hard time like we're having a hard time. He has temptations like we have temptations. It is deeply pastoral. Yes, we get it. We got it 57 times ago. But there's a sense of urgency here too, isn't there? I mean, sin com comes a knocking on the door, and uh, it's, it's kind of like he, he wants to grab us and go, brothers, brothers, hey, 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 do not be deceived. Do, do, my, every good and, per, and perfect gift is from God. It, you know, it's a call to be vigilant. It's a call to be at the ready. Uh, it is James out for our spiritual welfare, and it's God the Holy Spirit warning our souls in love that, that it's easy to be deceived. It's easy for us to ignore sin and, and have sin become a norm. And it is the Holy Spirit of God directing us to this reality that's coming up that we're looking at, which is that God is full of helps. And they are abundantly and perfectly provided, which takes us to our next point nicely, which is uh, good and perfect gifts. Uh, look at verse 17. Every good and perfect, uh, excuse me, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. See, I want to say that wrong because I've I had the NIV so long. They say it differently. Uh, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, my question to you is, that is that a statement? 
or is that an answer um, to the problem of, of temptation? Uh, it is a truth that can stand on its own, but I'm pointing out that James is addressing something. James is talking about uh, trials and resisting sin and not being deceived. And in regard to those things, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, uh, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's so much richness in all that. I think, first of all, we can see this, uh, the abundance of God. Uh, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Um, God has everything. All the stuff is his. It's his stuff. Uh, he controls everything. He appropriates everything for his own doing. Uh, he owns everything. He has power over everything, and he's got this great abundance uh, from which he can supply. Second thing we can see in here is the goodness of God. Every good gift, every perfect gift. Um, literally, a literal translation will put it this way. All good giving and every perfect gift. And uh, I'll tell you, there's a lot of scholarly dialogue about this verse and why James seems to be repeating himself. You can read like tons and tons of, of pages on it. Um, is, he, is he saying this? Um, let me read it literally for you again. All good giving and every perfect gift. Um, is he saying that for emphasis? Is he repeating it for emphasis? Um, is, he, is he using some kind of Greek uh, poetic device? Not Hebrew, but Greek. Um, or is it that um, giving speaks to God's action here and that the gifts themselves are uh, of a certain intrinsic state? I would say, yes, that's it. I think we're to see a God who is not static and distant, but personal and involved and caring. You know, I had a, a professor years ago. His name was Dennis Ireland. He never moved his upper lip. It was all just the lower lip. But he would talk about constantly over and over again. The dynamic rule and reign of Jesus. The dynamic rule and reign. He said that over and over. It's burned in my head, isn't it? The dynamic rule and reign. And you go, oh, that's dynamic, ladies and gentlemen. That's good, that's good seminary teaching right there. Dynamic rule and reign of Jesus. It's not that he's static and afar. He is a God. He is a God who is beyond us. It's true. But he's a God who's with us and who cares about us and is ruling and reigning dynamically. It's, it's the idea that God is constantly moving and intervening and caring about us. It's not just he's grand and big. He is that, but uh, he's involved and he's intimate. And I think that we're supposed to see verse 17 maybe through that lens. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Do you see how warm and intimate that is? It's uh, from that that we draw comfort and clarity and help for our own situations. He knows all the struggles, y'all. He knows all the hidden things. He's, he, he understands, and all of his gifts are intrinsically good like he's good. He's got helps, and they're good helps. They're perfect and complete for our welfare. Uh, in other words, um, the totally good God is doing everything totally good for our total good. Now, let's look at the second half of verse 17 here, talking about the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow. 
uh, due to change. You know, when, when um, the Bible refers to God as Father, um, it, it's often a reference to his creative power. Like, for instance, if you read the end of Job, where God is questioning Job, um, God says, does rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? Rhetorical questions. God is saying, I send the rain. Every one of these little snowflakes, think about that when you're driving home, by the way. Every one, and well, as they pile up over the week, every one of these little snowflakes, designed by God, ordained to fall where it fell, to stack on top of the thing it stacked on top of. Is that not all amazing? God is holding all those things together. But my point is, when, when the Bible speaks of uh, God as Father, there's often a reference to creative power, like I just said in, in Job. Or how about this? Um, uh, when referring to God, as, uh, a reference to the sovereign of heavens, um, one, Psalm 136. To him alone, to him who alone <clears throat> does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. Uh, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night. It is the, the grandeur of God in, in creation and referring to God as father of the heavenly lights uh, points to God's essential moral goodness. He's the, he's the father of the heavenly lights. Um, you don't have to turn, but um, in... Uh, Oh, where did I put that? Romans one twenty. Oh, let me skip that. Let, hey, let me say to um, let me go to First John one five. God is light; in Him there is no darkness at all. The, the Bible often equates God to light. That's very easy to understand, isn't it? God is light; in Him there is no darkness at all. That, that's that's the way God wants us to understand. So, to to grab Father of the heavenly lights uh, properly. It, it, it's, uh, it speaks to the immutability of his nature as well. Uh, verse 17, again, there's no variation or shadow due to change. Um, there is no uh, no shadow of turning, we would often sing. Others, others say no, there's no shifting shadows. You know, um, I love watching uh, like perspective. Like when you're on a when you're on vacation, your wife is sleeping and you're driving. Um, I like watching like the way trees kind of move past. You know what I'm talking about? Where uh, as you're as you're speeding down the road, they're kind of moving and flying. And there's a section on Houston Levee that I've experienced a number of times over the year. If the moon's hanging just right at night, and you're driving on this twisty road and the, the moon's bright enough and it's shining on the power lines. I, it, it's, it's down a ways, but it's on Houston Levee. When you're, when you're doing this and you see that moon, the moon looks like a ping pong ball going back and forth over the net. <laughs> it's the wildest thing, man. You, you know, you're, the car's zipping along, the road's doing this, and it's like the moon looks like a ping pong ball. So the sun comes and it moves and day comes and then night comes and it gets dark and it gets light and there's shadows moving all the time, shifting shadows all the time. Um, we're told here that God is the father of lights and there's no variation. There's no shifting shadow. Uh, he doesn't change. Even in the scriptures, when there are places where it appears God has perhaps changed his mind, people go, mm, what about when Moses prayed? I've, I've read it. What about Hezekiah? I've read it. Well, when it seems to me, stop. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 
I, the Lord, do not change. How about verse 17? Every good and the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. So if you ever come upon a piece of scripture and, uh, uh, and it goes, wow, it sure seems like God has changed his mind, you're starting in the wrong place. The right place to start is, I, the Lord, do not change. And there is great comfort in that for us, ladies and gentlemen. And there's comfort because the gospel can't be snatched from us and we can't be snatched from the Savior's hand. But it's also that this good and faithful God with perfect gifts is always there helping us, never forgetting about us, always interceding. All right, last point. It is written. Verse 18. Um, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Um, this is from, you know what, could you turn to 1 Peter for me? Uh, just flip, uh, to, uh, flip left a little bit to uh, Hebrews and then James. Peter, flip, flip, flip right, Peter, the next book. 1 Peter one twenty two. And some of this will sound familiar to you because it's a quote from Isaiah, but um, this is uh, 1 Peter one twenty two. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Here. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. Not so that you're born again, but because you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So you have this familiar thing that we hear every Sunday when Dr. Young reads the, uh, the scriptures, and it's talking about our obedience and having been born again. Um, this is the word, this is the good news that was preached to you. Uh, the, the gospel is preached to us in lots of, of ways, but um, one of those ways is that we're told how fleeting is life. The grass withers. We're a lot like the grass. It fades away. We're a lot like that. We acquire a lot of stuff, but then life, the years go by and we don't have the stuff anymore. Somebody else has the stuff. Um, uh, the gospel is preached to our souls as this rich and vibrant means of grace. And um, it's the primary means of grace in that we realize that the blessings of God are afforded us in it. Um, first fruits. Um, you know what first fruits are? First fruits are the best stuff. Uh, we planted tomato plants last year, our first tomato plants we ever planted, and they went bananas. Did they not? Our tomatoes went bananas. Okay, they actually turned into bananas. No, our, our tomatoes went nuts. Oh, there's another one. They, they grew really well. They grew really well. And, um, and at times you have this, uh, giant, this abundance of tomatoes where there'll be 24 of them sitting in your kitchen counter and you got to do something and you got to give them away. Well, I mean, I gave them to neighbors. I gave them to, there was a, there was a team of uh, three lawn guys mowing the yard of the people next to me. I go, hey, do you guys like tomatoes? Yeah. I said, hold on. I gave them each three tomatoes. Well, guess which ones I'm giving to them? The best ones. I'm picking them, going, you know, you know what? This one's pretty. I can always you know, put that in a... But I, I want to give the good tomatoes to the, the people. I want to give them the first fruits. And uh, it's kind of like food delivery services. Anybody get food delivery services where they bring a box to your door and somebody's picked out the mango and somebody's picked out the avocado and the tomato and all that? Anybody do that? I don't. 
I'm glad you do. It's great. But I want to, like, look at the green bean. I don't want a 17-year-old high school student picking it out for me who's never didn't even know how to cook the thing. I want to hold it in my hand and go, now, this one, this is the one I'm going to pick. Uh, this is the avocado that's the, the ripe one. Friends, you, in God's view, are first fruits. <laughs> You're special things to God. And he knows that we are under duress. He knows that we are tempted. He knows that we have trials and that we are prone to failings and that sometimes we open the door wide and, and allow uh, people to take up room in the house. But you are a first fruit. You're the special thing to God. And he wants you to be of highest quality for his purposes. And he gives good gifts uh, to that end. I'll close with this. Back to Malachi 3.6 that I had cited you. I, the Lord, do not change. That's great. That stands on its own. That's a good, solid thing to remember. I, the Lord, do not change. Oh, I wonder if God still loves me. I, the Lord, do not change. I wonder if this sin is too big for Jesus to uh, have uh, uh, tackled it on the cross. I, the Lord, do not change. You can cling to that reality. But let me read you the rest of the verse. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let me read it to you in another one. I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why you are not already destroyed. <laughs> is that not something? I, the Lord, do not change. It's bad news to those outside of Jesus Christ, but it's great news to uh, those who have him. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ addresses our sin problem. It's true. Uh, it addresses our guilt problem. It's true. Um, if, if you uh, wonder where you are in terms of this God and you think, well, you know, I just got to try to be my best and hopefully it'll all work out in the end. Well, you, you, you have it all wrong. It's not an earned thing. It's a given thing. Salvation is a gift. Uh, the gospel helps us with our sin problem. But the gospel also helps us uh, day to day to day. Helps us with our temptation. Helps us with our question marks. Helps us with our confusion and with COVID and with a broken shoulder and all this. Uh, let's all pray together. Lord, we thank you that uh, you are good and perfect, and so are your gifts. Uh, we uh, confess that we are easily deceived, that every time we sin, we have uh, forgotten all about you. And uh, there's a certain inevitability to our, our embracing temptation. Uh, it is that we forget you, and we forget our place in Jesus Christ, and we forget, forget how um, noble a position we're in, how we are your first fruit, fruits, your special things. And we just pray, Lord, that you would work on our hearts this week, that we would uh, be a worshiping group of people, remembering that the gospel is um, for our good in every respect. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much, everybody. <laughs>